The title of this evening's talk is Through the Looking Glass, The Reality of No Self. And the looking glass being a a reflecting mirror that one can step into, as in the story of Alice in Wonderland. Over a period of years during my childhood and then on through adolescence and into my teen years, I had a a recurring dream many, many times. And in these dreams I would be standing looking at myself in the mirror, looking in the mirror, back and back and smaller and smaller. Myself, looking at myself in the mirror, seeing myself, looking at myself in the mirror, kind of endlessly. And I was often amazed and fascinated and intrigued uh, with this dream, this recurring dream. And if I thought about it very much, um, I would feel quite perplexed by it. But mostly I was just very interested in it. Interested enough, in fact, that it's the only dream that I remember experiencing in my early years. This dream eventually wove itself into the very fabric of my life, beginning when at the age of 16, I discovered the Buddhist teachings because of a paper that I was required to write in high school um, about religions other than Judeo-Christian. And right then, when I discovered Buddhism for the first time, I had the distinct feeling of touching into a sense, a very deep sense, in fact, of coming home. And the dream of looking at myself in the mirror, at myself looking at myself in the mirror, became the gist of the direction that my life has followed ever since. With this evening's talk, we'll explore the third of what are called the three characteristics the three truths of all phenomena. We've looked into anicca, the first of these truths, the constantly changing, impermanent nature of all things, all situations, every relationship, every experience, and every phenomena that arises in our body-mind continuum. The second universal characteristic being dukkha, which we've looked into on, uh, off and on, mostly on, throughout uh, these, this whole retreat so far, the first two weeks when Annie was teaching with me and then continuing. And dukkha meaning the ultimately unsatisfactory nature of everything in the world. Nothing being secure, sustaining, in the outer world of experiences, relationships, places, situations, material objects, and in the inner world of our experiences of body and mind. None of it offering a sustaining sense of pleasure, a sustaining sense of happiness, but rather the dukkha of the round and round and round of pleasant and unpleasant, seemingly good and bad, liking and disliking. The dukkha of the rounds of conditional existence. Simply because of the natural and ongoing mortality of all things. All phenomena being of the nature to change and to pass away thus making it undependable in terms of giving us any ongoing, sustaining satisfaction. 
This evening we'll begin to explore the not-self nature of it all. The reality for many people that seems the most difficult to touch, the most difficult to know and to live. And for some, though, it might be an intriguing reality. The thought, the imagined reality of not-self or no-self may often be fraught with a subtle or a more overt fear. In its essence, this third characteristic, the third truth, is so basic, so simple, and that with just even a taste of it, it makes our life so much easier to live. It's kind of amazing that so many of us are so fearful of stepping through the veil, lifting the thin veil of concept, of an idea, of belief that separates us from this reality of not-self or no-self. Most of us live in and out of the idea, the concept of a separate, solid, and even a static me, I, them, her, that, it. Within the context of our immediate bodily and mental experience and within the imagined context of the possible future or of the already evaporated past. It's true that stepping through the veil asks us to let go of attachment, let go of attachment to all of our clung-to and cherished hopes, fears, and beliefs, and to let go of attachment to all of our clung-to and cherished self-identities. And I think it's quite important to recognize that in letting go of our attachment, we're not asked to throw our self out. It's not about getting rid of, getting rid of what we think of as our self, because it's uh, wrong, it's a bad thing. It's spiritually incorrect. What's really asked of us is to simply recognize that everything we think of as our self, everything we believe to be our self, everything we think of and believe to be other selves, just simply doesn't exist in any independent, permanent, unchanging, solid, static, substantial way. Not even for a moment. Our so-called self is in constant flux. So, in truth, there's nothing to attach to. There's nothing to cling to. Essentially, all of the Buddha's teachings and practices lead to this. The Buddha, in fact, refused to deal with things that didn't lead to the extinction of clinging, the extinction of clinging to unreality, that didn't lead to the extinction of dukkha. He wouldn't even discuss questions that didn't deal directly in some way with understanding confusion and anguish. He wasn't a teacher of philosophy. He was a teacher of life, a teacher of a way of life, a teacher of the practices that directly lead to the experiential understanding of the truth, of the way of things. He was a teacher of peace, a teacher of a very practical path to peace. The essential aim of the teachings and the practices is to look in the mirror at our self and look with such sincerity, humility, and willingness that we begin to see our self more accurately. 
begin to see through ourselves directly and essentially experiencing things in themselves without all the layers of meaning that we invest things with when we're attached without all the layers of meaning that we invest things with when we're identified with them it's actually very simple maybe not so easy but very simple so again as I mentioned last night we're sitting or whenever night it was I don't remember pleasant is just merely pleasant unpleasant is just merely unpleasant heat merely heat pressure just pressure red or yellow or blue or green just red or yellow or blue or green rising and falling is just merely rising and falling memory is just memory thinking is merely thinking all of these things all of these occurrences are merely are just themselves there are merely existing and rapidly changing conditions merely hot merely cold merely being a person in the realm of conditional existence there's no real no true sustaining happiness in the realm of conditional existence and in the same vein there's no real suffering it's because of self-grasping that we suffer it's through the erroneous concept of self what the Buddha called the conceit of self that we experience anguish and confusion and this is from Nan Shin a Chinese sage by not quite accepting because they do not please us things that are so we spend our entire lives making meaningless gestures somewhere next door to reality we experience this and that everything anything can we keep looking can we keep looking to see that things are only just so much can we look into the mirror of our self without claiming ownership and without investing interpretation without investing a layer of meaning over top of what we see so for instance we think of um, my foot or my arm or my nose or my hair my friends my house this is some of how we create self again and again this is how we see how we know self the Buddha had an amazing way of turning things right around he taught that this isn't seeing self it's in the understanding that they're not self is seeing self the looking glass of the Dhamma looking in the mirror at myself looking in the mirror myself looking at myself in the mirror seeing the truth of self looking at myself in the mirror if we continue to investigate with willingness and humility 
it's inevitable that eventually our habitual perceptions will change. The knot, the tangle, the tightly grasped beliefs that there's a self and that things belong to self will gradually untangle, will come undone. When this erroneous sense of things is no longer our primary orientation to life, the opposite way of perceiving will quite naturally, steadily increase. And I'd like to uh, share with you some words of a woman named Vimala Thakkar, who was one of Krishnamurti's closest students and who herself has been a profound and powerful spiritual teacher in her own right. And she says this about humility. This is the only austerity that's required of an inquirer, the austerity of humility. To see things as they are, to see my inner being as it is, good or bad, to observe it as it is without defending it, without justifying it, without interpreting or judging it, without taking pride in it, and without relegating the responsibility of those states to other people. Humility is the perennial source of energy, energy or freshness, she says. Humility enables you to learn, keeps you pliable, perhaps to the last breath, I hope, she says. Can we observe experience, inquire into phenomena without interpretation, without analysis, without evaluation, but connect and sustain with a bare, simple attention, a non-interpretive, non-comparative attention? It's really only then that the observer, the so-called self, and what is being observed, what is being investigated, are no longer separate. No me and it. And there's merely rising or falling, merely heat, merely an ache in the chest, or a tingling moving through the body, merely a thought arising and passing. No duality, as it's sometimes spoken of, no two, not two. Just this present moment being known just as it is. Only by training oneself again and again in seeing and knowing the presently arisen thoughts, bodily sensations, and other sense door experiences, feelings, mind states, and perceptions as mere impersonal processes can the power of a deeply rooted, egocentric thoughts or habits, all the self-centered inclinations be loosened and broken up, be reduced and let go of, and finally eliminated at some point. It's through the actual, not the conceptual, but the actual direct experiential confrontation with the fact of impersonality that we come to know self not self, no self and then finally or just for a moment it's not all about me and the painful contraction that accompanies me and mine that's based in the fear of losing something. It's not all about that. For a moment there's nothing, no thing to cling to. For a moment the heart-mind is free. And from the Buddha, nothing whatsoever is to be clung to as I, me, or mine. Whoever has heard this truth has heard all the Dhamma. 
Whoever practices this truth has practiced all the Dhamma. Whoever realizes this truth has realized all the Dhamma. And a short piece from Stephen Mitchell, his version of the Narcissus story offers quite a potent metaphor metaphor in this direction. It was not the image of his own face that transfixed him as he bent down over the pool. He had seen that face often before, in mirrors, in a thousand photographs, in women's eyes. It was an undistinguished face, but handsome enough with its long eyelashes, full lips, and stately nose sloping to a curious plateau near the tip. No, it was something else now that rooted him to the spot. Kneeling there, gazing in this so-taken-for-granted form, he grew more and more poignantly aware that it was mere surface. When the water was calm, it was calm. When the water rippled at the touch of a leaf or a fish, it too rippled or broke apart when he churned the water with his hand. More and more fascinated, he kept staring through the image of his face into the depths beneath, filled with a multitude of other moving, shadowy forms. He knew that if he stayed there long and patiently enough, he would be able to see straight through to the bottom. And at that moment, he knew the image would disappear. It's a heavy load, a heavy burden to carry ourself around. All the hopes, all the fears. We shoulder a heavy burden carrying around the things of our life in the forms of thoughts, feelings, various perceptions, various beliefs. Believing that they're mine, me, myself. The burden or the sting of carrying it all with a sense of ownership, with a sense of identification. The Buddha offered the metaphor of seeing a poisonous snake. But if you don't pick it up, there's no poisonous bite. It's still a snake, but the poison hasn't touched you, hasn't gotten to you. Can we come to know about phenomena so clearly, so truly, that we simply and genuinely don't get entangled, don't get stung, don't get caught up with it? Therein lies the potential of peace of mind. Life still happens. We make use of things in this world as it's appropriate. We keep looking and seeing, living life, And in fact, living life much more freshly and fully, right in the here and now. Ordinary life becomes our practice. Ordinary life becomes our teacher, right here on retreat, for instance, and in our life outside of retreat, as we lift a cup and fill it with water, as we sit, and notice as we receive and simply know the gap between the out-breath and the in-breath. Buddhist poet Jane Hirschfield uh, has something to say about this. (laughs) The title of this poem is Only When I Am Quiet and Do Not Speak. Only when I am quiet for a long time and do not speak do the objects of my life draw near. Shy the scissors and spoons, the blue mug, hesitant even the towels for all their intimate knowledge and scent of fresh bleach. How steady their regard as they ponder, dreaming and waking the entrancement of my daily wanderings and tasks. Drunk on the honey of feelings, On the honey of purpose, they seem to be thinking. 
a quiet judgment that glistens between the glass doorknobs. Yet theirs is not a false reserve of a scarcely concealed ill will, nor that other active shying of pelted rocks. No, not that, for I hear the sigh of happiness each object gives off if I glimpse for even an instant the actual instant. As if they believed it's possible I might join their circle of simple, passionate thusness, their hidden rituals of luck and solitude, the joyous gap in them where appears in us the pronoun I. Our whole life becomes our practice as we begin to touch into the realization that nothing is really ours, that all things are constantly changing within themselves and in relationship to each other, that even this body is merely a collection of constantly changing interdependent processes. Do I reside in the intestine? or in the rumbling sensations therein? Am I the thigh bone, or the skin, or the head hair, or the softness inside the mouth? Is the in-breath, the cool sensation of the in-breath, me? Do I reside in the fluid vibration of the foot moving through space, or in the sensation beginning in the heart and spreading through the body as metta is offered to a dear friend. We might think, okay, maybe I'm not the foot, not the sensation of the in-breath, but certainly my mind, certainly my consciousness is me. I mean, without my mind, Without my individual consciousness, who would I be? One of the things most of us cling to most tenaciously and unwittingly is what we think of as our mind, our conscious mind. As these next words are spoken, let go of listening with the intellect letting go of interpreting with the intellect, and just simply open and receive the words, just simply and directly hearing. Where and what is it that we call mind? Where is the mind? Can you find it? Does the mind have a shape, a color, a texture? Is the mind in the body? Is it coming from somewhere outside the body or from someone else? Do you find anything we can call mind? Am I the mind? Is the mind me? What is the essential nature of mind? Is it different from the nature of body or from the nature of anything? The very nature of mind itself is that it's unformed. It's without color, without shape, 
It's like space, unborn. Look into your own mind. It's like experiencing zero, which might not be very appealing sounding, a very appealing sounding experience to most people. In the opening line of a book by mathematician Robert Kaplan, he says, when you look at zero, you see nothing. Look through it, and you see the world. Again, the Buddha, directly out of his own experience, turns our ordinary ways of thinking about things upside down. Even our precious, our cherished individual consciousness is a conditional phenomena. It too arises and passes away moment by moment. It too is dependent on contact with some object through one of the six sense doors. Dependent on the feelings of pleasant and unpleasant that arise because of this contact. It too is dependent on the mental labels, constructs, and clinging that arise in the conscious mind through contact. The Buddha gave a short discourse on the non-self characteristics uh, very early on, uh, very soon after he was enlightened actually. And it's a series of questions that we can take to heart as um, a practice teaching. And he repeated this, this practice teaching many, many times throughout his 45 years of teaching. So I'd like to read you the uh, short sutta that he offered to the five um, monks who had been his companions uh, prior to him going off by himself and sitting under the Bodhi tree. On one occasion, the Blessed One was dwelling at Varanasi in the Deer Park and said this, Monk's material form is non-self. For if monk's material form were self, this material form would not lead to affliction, and it would be possible to determine of material form, let my material, let my material form be thus, let my form not be thus. But because material form is non-self, material form leads to affliction, and it's not possible to determine of material form, let my form be, th be thus, let my form not be thus. And then he goes on through all of the uh, experiences of being human. Feeling is non-self. Perception is non-self. Volition is uh, volitional formation. Thoughts and actions are non-self. Consciousness is non-self, and he does the same repetition. Consciousness is non-self. For if monk's consciousness were self, this consciousness would not lead to affliction. And it would not, and it would be possible to determine of consciousness, let my consciousness be thus, let my consciousness not be thus. But because consciousness is non-self, consciousness leads to affliction, and it's not possible to determine of consciousness, let my consciousness be thus, let my consciousness not be thus. And then he goes on with his monks. What do you think, monks? Is material form permanent or impermanent? Impermanent, venerable sir, they respond. Is what is impermanent suffering or happiness? Suffering, venerable sir, they say. Is what is impermanent suffering and subject to change fit to be regarded thus? This is mine, this I am, this is myself. No, venerable sir, they say. 
and then he goes on again. Is feeling permanent or impermanent? Is perception permanent and impermanent? Are volitional formations permanent or impermanent? Is consciousness permanent or impermanent? Impermanent, venerable sir, is what is impermanent suffering or happiness? Suffering, venerable sir, is what is impermanent suffering and subject to change to be regarded thus? This is mine, this I am, this is myself. No, venerable sir. Therefore, monks, says the Buddha, any kind of material form whatsoever, whether past, future, or present, internal or external, gross or subtle, inferior or superior, far or near, all material form form should be seen as it really is, with correct wisdom. This is not mine. This I am not. This is not myself. And again, he goes through each of the feelings, perception, volitional formations, consciousness. Seeing thus, monks, the instructed noble disciple, he's, the Buddha is still speaking, seeing thus, monks, the instructed noble disciple becomes disenchanted with material form, disenchanted with feelings, disenchanted with perception, disenchanted with volitional formations, disenchanted with consciousness. Becoming disenchanted, he, becoming, he becomes dispassionate. Through dispassionate, dispassion, his heart, his mind is liberated. When it is liberated, there comes the knowledge. It is liberated. He understands. Destroyed is birth. The spiritual life has been lived. What, has to, what had to be done has been done. There is no more coming back to this state of suffering again. This is what the Blessed One said. Elated, these monks delighted in the Buddha's words. And while this discourse was being spoken, the, it said that the minds of these five, the group of five, were liberated from the, as it's called, the taints of non-clinging. And then there were six arahants, six accomplished, six fully enlightened beings in the world. The conscious mind arises and passes moment by moment, just like every other conditioned phenomenon. Consciousness exists only in relationship to some object that it's in contact with through one of the six sense doors, no matter how gross or subtle that object might be. And to make this very clear to his students, the Buddha, as I just read, spoke quite specifically about the six aspects or the six doors of consciousness over and over again. Eye consciousness, ear consciousness, nose consciousness, tongue consciousness, body and mind or mind phenomena consciousness. It's from this perspective that the Buddha speaks about consciousness being conditional and that because of this in fact it can be one of the arising conditions that leads to suffering. And again some words from the Buddha. When one does not intend and one does not plan and one does not have a tendency towards anything. No basis exists exists for the maintenance of individual, or we could say, self-centered consciousness. When there's no basis, there's no support for the establishing of this self-centered consciousness. When this self-centered consciousness is unestablished and doesn't come to growth, there's no inclination. When there's no inclination, there's no coming and going. When there's no coming and going, there's no passing away and being born. When there's no passing away and being born, future birth, aging and death, sorrow, lamentation, pain, displeasure and despair cease. Such is the cessation of this whole mass of suffering. As awakening beings, 
can we begin to directly experience and know the changing and interdependent nature of all things? And the mirror of the Dhamma from the perspective of an 8th century Chinese sage. Nature may be compared to a vast ocean. Thousands and millions of changings are taking place in it. Crocodiles and fish are essentially the same of the same substance as the water in which they live. Humans are crowded together with the myriad other things in the great changingness. And our nature is one with that of all other natural things. Knowing that I am of the same nature as all other natural things, I know that there's really no separate self, no separate personality, no absolute death, no absolute life. And a wonderfully a simple poem by Jim Harrison. I've decided to make up my mind about nothing. <laughs> to assume the water mask. To finish my life disguised as a creek, an eddy. Joining at night the full sweet flow. To absorb the sky. To swallow the heat and cold, the moon and the stars to swallow myself in ceaseless flow. As we move into the last part of this evening's talk, I'd like to offer two brief guided meditations, beginning with the possibility of allowing the mind to open to an image in relationship to the words that I'll be speaking. Or if an image doesn't come easily, then simply allowing a felt sense to permeate in relationship to the following descriptive words. And beginning with your eyes closed. <clears throat> Visualizing or sensing on some level, an enormous jeweled net. A net of infinite, of boundless proportions. And letting this fill your heart, fill your mind. This net is woven of an infinite variety of brilliant crystal gems each with countless facets. <clears throat> At each point where the strings of the net meet, there's a brilliant, highly reflective, multifaceted gem. And so each gem, each jewel, reflects in itself every other gem in the net, while at the same time its image is reflected in each of the other gems. In this image, this vision, each jewel contains all the other jewels. To look at one jewel at any point is to see the reflection of all the gems at all the points in the net. A boundless net of beginningless, endless, radiating aliveness.
Now let the image or the felt sense, just let it dissolve. the intricately interwoven tapestry of life with everything constantly changing and everything reflecting everything in this many-hued and faceted jeweled net of life. This is the relative side of selflessness, the relative side of not-self, no-self. This is the ground of understanding, the aspect of the wisdom of not-self that compassion springs from. As awakening beings, we more and more act, more and more often act only from the heart of compassion. Because of the growing and pervading clarity of understanding that there's only relationship, There's only, as Thich Nhat Hanh calls it, there's only interbeing. There's no separate, no isolated, independent you. No separate me. And from Shantideva, a century Buddhist monk, I should dispel the pain of others because it hurts like my own. And I should be good to them because they feel just as I do. When both they and I are in this, the same and wanting joy and not desiring pain, what's so special about me? When I act for the sake of others, no amazement or conceit arises. Just like feeding myself, I hope for nothing in return. And now the second guided meditation. In the mind's eye, or the eye of wisdom which is centered in the heart, as Pawak Sayadaw says, visualize or simply open to a felt sense of a vast, clear, empty, endless, sky-like space. Just relaxing and staying open and present with this. And now beginning to picture a few clouds of different shapes and sizes forming in this space, this sky-like space. And the clouds are moving, changing shape, dissolving, new clouds appearing and disappearing. In this visualization or felt sense, let the mind, the heart rest in the openness of the sky, rest in the vast openness, not fixating on any cloud, just simply being aware of their arising, moving, changing, and passing away. If at any point all the clouds disappear, simply allow the heart to rest in the vast, clear, empty, endless sky-like space.
can now let the image fade away and just sit for a moment letting the heart, the mind open wide allowing awareness to be spacious not fixing any edges to it and now for a moment quickly turn the awareness around to look at itself not looking for anything just aware of awareness itself just knowing the knowing who knows who knows And now bringing the attention back into the body. And back to the breath. And back to hearing. And just sitting in the body. As we learn to step step back and open up and face the looking glass with willingness and humility, we begin to touch the empty essence of all things, the vast, open, empty essence that all things emerge out of and dissolve back into. We look in. We keep looking whether we're standing, sitting, moving, or lying down. Our practice is to keep looking through the clear mirror of the Dhamma. We see that everything, all things, are arising, changing, and passing away. We see that because of this, there's no thing that satisfies no thing that brings pleasure joy or ease in an ongoing or sustaining way we understand that we can't depend on anything in this world of our own body-mind continuum or the world around us to render us really truly happy and at ease And we continue to just simply, humbly look in the mirror at ourself, going back and back into the looking glass of self. Mindful awareness becomes clearer and more open, more all-encompassing, more spacious. Back and back to the source of itself. Back to the source of all things. Instead of finding some solid, static, separate something or some solid rendition of I, me, some fixed eternal entity, we get back to this vastness, this bright, vital spaciousness of heart, spaciousness of being. In this there's no solid, separate I or or other. In this emptiness, this essential emptiness, there's an ease, the equipoise of a deep ease of well-being. Even in the midst of the arising, changing, and passing of all the happenings of life within us and around us. As long as we fixedly reside mentally in the realm of 
I, me, mine, and other. We're residing somewhere next door to reality. And it creates huge problems. The greatest problems. The greatest suffering we experience. We have a sense of being separate. Being an isolated, separate entity. This is really the cause of our fundamental pain, our fundamental suffering. The core loneliness that human beings feel. There's a story about a friend of mine, true story, about a friend of mine who was uh, suffering from this core loneliness and he decided to um, seek the help of a therapist for the first time in his life at the age of about 40. And with the advice uh, from friends, he picked a therapist who had uh, a Buddhist orientation. When he called to make an appointment, he was told by the secretary that it would be very helpful if he um, brought some symbol of his problem, some symbol of his concern with him for his first therapy session. So he arrived at the therapist's office toting a huge load of baggage of all different sizes, shapes, uh, and colors. And he set them down in the waiting room. This He's got a great sense of humor, this guy. And then he went, went out to his car and he got another load <laughs> and piled these on top of the first load. He told me, and he said he also told the therapist that he had to go around collecting baggage from friends and family because he said he didn't have enough of his own baggage. So when it came time to go into the therapist's office, he, uh, of course, took all of the baggage with him, piled it up in front of the therapist. And it's, he said that at some point during this first uh, session, in her wisdom, the therapist asked my friend to open up all of the baggage. And there wasn't anything inside any of it. A very wise therapist, and of course, uh, it's not every client that uh, a therapist can do this with. This man was obviously ripe for such a teaching, actually. (laughs) When we begin to taste the truth of no-self or not-self, When we touch into this simple reality, often at first there can be a kind of poignancy. And then at some point there can be a sense of entering into a measureless beauty. And often there's a feeling of great relief, like finally putting down a heavy load that we've been carrying around unwittingly and not knowing the difference until we begin to recognize and understand that the load and its nature and then just simply set it down. There's an old uh, teaching story about this that I really like. It's the story of a woman who had practiced for many years and had had some uh, powerful and even uh, expansive experiences and a number of quite illuminating insights but still she felt she hadn't really reached the goal. And she was getting up in years and feeling um, that there wasn't much time left. And, so, and she very so much wanted uh, freedom in this lifetime. So she decided to take herself up to the top of the mountain to see the wise one who she'd heard was able to turn the mind, able to turn the heart directly to the truth. And as she was nearing the end of her arduous hike up the mountain, an old man carrying a satchel on his back passed her. He was on his way down. And just as he passed, the woman called out and stopped him. And he stopped and he turned around towards her. And the woman asked him if he knew anything about the wise one who lived up on top of the mountain. 
and she explained to this man that she was on her way up there to uh, see this being because she wanted to know the deepest truth, the ultimate wisdom, so that she could be fully awakened and free in this very lifetime. And she explained that she wanted to awaken and to be liberated from all of her confusion, anguish, and striving. She told the old man that she'd heard that the wise one up at the top of the mountain might be the one to reveal this to her. Well, the old man stood very still and listened, looked at her, and then taking his time, he slowly turned around and continued walking down the mountain for just a few steps. And then he stopped again and briefly stood very still and again slowly turned around towards the woman and then very slowly and very carefully took the satchel off his back, set it down on the ground, turned around again and walked down the mountain towards the town. Can we come to know about phenomena so clearly, so truly, that we simply and genuinely don't get entangled, don't get stung, don't get caught up with it? Therein lies the potential for peace of mind. Life still happens. We make use of things in the world as is appropriate. We keep exploring, seeing and understanding, living life, living life more freshly, more fully, in the immediate presence of here and now. And ordinary life becomes our practice. Ordinary life becomes our teacher. And so there are two wings of awakening with which we fly free. The wing of wisdom, the liberating equipoise of unfettered, pure awareness in relationship to all phenomena that arises and passes through the six sense doors. This liberating wisdom that comes about via our direct experiential insight into the emptiness, the empty nature, the not-self nature of all things. And the other wing, the wing of compassion, our heartfelt connection to beings, the ground of which is a profound understanding of the essential interconnectedness of all beings, all things, this being the relative aspect of understanding no self or not self. This wing of freedom, the wing of compassion, is that which connects the liberating understanding of the absolute emptiness of self to the relative nature of our humanness and what informs the way we be, informs how we act in the world. And of course, to truly fly free, we need both wings. In closing the talk this evening, I'd like to offer two uh, pieces from a collection called the Udana, uh, the Inspired Utterances of the Buddha. In the first piece, seclusion is happiness for one content who knows the Dhamma, who has seen. Friendliness towards the world is happiness for those whose hearts bend kindly to all beings. Serenity amidst the world is happiness for those who have let go of sense desires. But the end of the conceit, I am, this is the greatest happiness of all. And the second piece from the Udana, this inspired book of inspired utterances from the Buddha. The Buddha is speaking with one of his disciples in this piece, whose name is Bahia.
In the seen, there is only the seen. In the heard, there is only the heard. In the sensed, there is only the sensed. In the cognized, there is only the cognized. Thus you should see that indeed there is no thing here. This Bahia is how you should train yourself. Since Bahia, there is for you in the seen, only the seen. In the heard, only the heard. In the sensed, only the sensed. In the cognized, only the cognized. And you see that there is no thing here. You will therefore see that indeed there is no thing there. As you see that there is no thing there, you will see that you are therefore located neither in the world of this nor in the world of that, nor in any place betwixt the two. This alone is the end of suffering. And let's sit quietly for just a moment. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.